many of you, that God spoke to us about a year, 18 months ago, concerning the relationship between churches, those churches which Terry covers and works with in this country and overseas, some 50 in number. And so it is that this evening, what I want to share with you now, relates to the church in South Africa that had a need, the church in Cape Town, where there was a real need in the black township we visited and which you'll be seeing this evening. And it was lovely for us just to be able to respond and say, we will bring a work party out from many of the churches whom Terry works with in order to stand with you, to provide extra resource, and to do some practical work as well as some evangelism. And when we advertised, um, very lightly really, back in about May and then again at the Downs, we were thrilled to find that 50 people responded from uh, some 18 of those churches and said, we would love to come. Not only would we love to come, but we are prepared to fork out 800 pounds of our own money and take two weeks holiday to do it. That was the only criterion for selection. And so when we got there and we met at Heathrow, no one knew everyone. But immediately it became very clear that what we had was a quality team. And I think that we were thrilled to feel that just at random almost, one could draw 50 people from across the churches and find quality people. And that was what was worked out through the following two weeks, as we shall be seeing in a moment. Now, I'm going to use slides to illustrate this. I'd like, first of all, just to say that these are slides I didn't take. They were taken by Penny, who is sitting down here. Just stand up, Penny. Penny is from Sidcup. She's professional in this field. She's visiting us for the first time today. Do fill in a card. Uh, she's uh, a professional in the field of um, audiovisual aids and so on. And when we knew we were going to be doing this this evening, I said, Penny, could you possibly bring some slides down because I think it brings it to life. I hadn't seen the slides until a couple of hours ago and then found it very difficult to select from excellent slides just the 950 we wanted to show you tonight. <laughs> If we could have the lights down. Dave, could you just lean against those top row of switches and turn them all off? Um, as you go into uh, Cape Town, uh, well, strictly speaking, just so that I'm not got by Penny immediately, this is a photo from Table Mountain, but it gives an aerial view of... No, I want that on, please. An aerial view uh, from uh, Table Mountain of Cape Town and just shows something of uh, the beauty of just one part of the nation. But as you come in by plane, in fact, you see a rather different sight because here we are coming in over Crossroads and Kyalicha, and this is the township in which we were going to be working for the next uh, fortnight. This is the early part of Kyalicha where they actually started putting up buildings, and then later, they, um, as you will see subsequently, they put up uh, shacks and tents. Now, I've got here a map just to show where Kyalicha is with respect to the rest of Cape Town. You'll see here the Cape of Good Hope, which is familiar. I'm sure those of you who did geography at school will know all about the Cape of Good Hope. The reason for Cape Town being founded, which is here and in this bay, was that it served as a watering point and a provisions point for the ships sailing from east to west uh, on the trade route with the trade winds. The other familiar points you might have heard of, a table mountain there, Weinberg, which I'll be referring to later, but which is where the church we were visiting was based and uh, where it started life. And out here is Kyalicha, which is the township that we're talking about. 
And what I particularly want you to notice is, first of all, how far it is out of the centre of Cape Town, and you've got the poor um, section of the population living here, so transport in is obviously very expensive. The other is how exposed it is to the southeast trade winds. And the whole of this area, in fact, is like a large sandy beach. So if you're living there and you have a constant trade wind blowing, you're eating sand, breathing sand, finding sand in everything you own, and the fact that you're living in a tent doesn't necessarily help matters very much. Now, this, as I say, is the township itself. I want to just contrast one or two other parts of, the, uh, of South Africa just to show you that parts of it are beautiful and overwhelmingly lovely, and yet down there in Kailicha, somewhere where some of the rich live, showing very much the Dutch uh, influence on the architecture. The Dutch settlers were the early settlers in South Africa. But by contrast, we then move down into Kailicha itself in just a few moments. <coughs> Here we are, en route to Kailicha. Now, to give you a little bit of the background of this, you see here the sandy flats. Kailicha is a township right next door to Crossroads. Crossroads, I'm sure you're very familiar with it uh, because of the uprisings that have taken place from time to time, the looting, the burning, and so on. And the government established the township of Kailicha in order to give somewhere for the church to, uh, for the, um, the poor people, sorry, to be moved to and establish some sort of better living and what they did was to provide a grid of electricity uh, to the main poles that you see there. It's certainly not electricity to the houses, but there is a water supply and there is also a sewage supply going into the individual uh, roads and the individual shacks so that each person at least has access to toilet and water. Here we have Graham and Terry. Graham leads the uh, work in uh, Cape Town the Weinberg Baptist Church, which um, was centered in Weinberg, divided about four years ago, and Graham led a company of some 200 people to form the Vineyard Fellowship. Graham is an Englishman. He was in Lee, South Lee in London, for about eight or nine years before John Houghton took over the church. Then, in response to a real missionary call, he went out first of all to Zambia and then moved down into, uh, to South Africa uh, about 12 years ago. Now, since the founding of that church four years ago, there has been growth from 200 to 600, and it is continuing very rapidly. And one of the congregations there is indeed the congregation that is down in the township. Here we have some of the elders uh, of that church. I won't name them all because you wouldn't remember them, but they're the elders of the church with our team leaders. The 50 people we took out, we divided up into five teams and appointed a team leader for evangelism, for building, and so on. And here we are, down at the southern tip at Cape Point on a day off that we had uh, with the elders and their wives. Farney is the pastor of the uh, congregation in Kailicha, which now meets in his house, and we'll show you a picture of that in a moment. But I'd like to just give you a little bit of a history of how this came about. It'll be familiar to some of you, but not all. About 18 months to two years ago, when the uprisings were taking place and we saw all the trouble on our televisions, Farney, who was living down in Kailicha and had moved there from a pastorate in the Eastern Cape um, because he wanted to work with his own Koza people, that's the tribal people who primarily are the group who live in uh, that township, he was very disillusioned with 
the whites whom he had been working with before. But when the troubles took place, Graham's church went down there with an evangelist team and just a helping, caring team and started doing what they could just to provide practical help, to provide loving support. Farney saw them and was impressed with what he saw. He got to know Graham, and Graham gave him a copy of Terry's book, Restoration in the Church. And as a result of reading that, Farney said, that is the sort of church I believe we should be building. That's the sort of church I want to be involved in. There followed about a, a, a six-month uh, courtship between Farney and the Vineyard Fellowship. And last February, when Terry was out in um, Cape Town, he laid hands on Farney as one of the elders of the vineyard. And Farney at that stage had a congregation of some 30 black people uh, in Kyalicha, and they became a part of the Vineyard Fellowship who meet in celebration style every Sunday evening, and as many as possible of those blacks come in on that occasion. Since February, it has grown by 90, and they now have a congregation of 120 in that black township. Fourfold growth in about nine months. I think we uh, would feel a bit overwhelmed or very excited if we saw that here. And I believe that even more growth has now taken place as a result of our presence with them. Farney's wife, Ella, is uh, very uh, supportive to the women's side of the work, uh, to the mums. She's got sewing classes going. She's helped a lot with the nutrition work, uh, which we'll be talking about in a moment. <clears throat> and Antoana, who is a black pastor who was working with Farney in a former situation in the Eastern Cape, and Farney invited him to come and join with the work here in about May of this year, and he and Farney are now working side by side, and um, Ntwana acted primarily as our interpreter in a quite tremendous way throughout the evangelism which Michael will be sharing at a later stage. This is now Farney's house, the two-story house. There are very, very few two-story buildings in Kailicha, but when we were out there in February, we left a thousand pounds behind and said to Graham, just use that in any way you feel appropriate. And so this is, in fact, what they did with that money. Until then, Farney had been living in a shack. They put him up, a two-story house, where he lives on the first floor, and downstairs is now the meeting place, the congregational area through the week, where they do the sewing classes, where they've got a little store which sells the clothes that many of you sent over with us when we went over, and which they make through their sewing classes. And so downstairs, essentially, is the churches, as it were, and upstairs is where Farney lives with his wife and children. And here we have some of the congregation immediately after a service which was held there on the Sunday that we were out there, on one of the Sundays we were there, um, just standing around enjoying fellowship uh, as they go home. This is inside that same building. Um, it's now thoroughly overcrowded. If you can imagine 120 people in a room, probably about the size of the cameo room, you can get a feel of what it's like. But uh, they're very gracious and they enjoy life and it doesn't seem to put them out too much about the fact that they can't easily get in. Now to show you why Kyalich was created, we've just put in two or three pictures here of crossroads, uh, which, as you can see, is kind of self-explanatory slum. There is no uh, sewage there, uh, there's no electricity there, uh, minimal water points, uh, the conditions are appalling, and the health hazards are extremely high. As a result, the government moved out many of the people forcibly and gave them tents which now some of the saints have been living in, in an area which has come to be known as 
Green Point. First of all, this is a group of some 1,200 children who attend a school in Crossroads. I think uh, Penny was telling me that there are 500 children of a similar age who cannot get into the school. The level of schooling is fairly basic, but uh, here, as I say, are some of the children who are getting in there. Here's an overview of Kaya It goes on for miles and miles. There are very nearly a quarter of a million people estimated to live there. It is in various different sites. We were working on a particular site called Site C most of the time. And this is now Green Point, the tents in which many of the people were forcibly moved to uh, when uh, they bulldozed in the crossroads area. These tents are probably about 10 foot by 6 foot. Um, regardless of the size of your family, this is they were given. And if you can imagine temperatures into the 90s and the sand blowing, you can imagine what the living conditions are like inside one of those tents. And this was mainly one of the main thrusts of the work that we were doing out there was to try and provide some alternative accommodation to these tents. They had done quite a lot of self-help work themselves in the way of building shacks, and we got alongside them and helped in that area. There's one other person I'd like you to meet, and that's Roger, who is um, here with his wife, Wendy, and with a member of the church. Roger is a colored guy, and color out there is distinct from black. The coloreds are what you might call the half-caste. They're kind of the mixed-race people, maybe a bit of Indian or a bit of Malaysian or a bit of something else thrown in to someone in their forebears who married a white person. In many ways, they're not quite the lowest of the low, but no one quite knows where to put them. Roger is a very intelligent guy. He's got a degree from Cape Town University, was offered a place at Harvard Business School, but said, no, I feel that what I should be doing is working down in Kyalicha full-time to improve the lot of the people down there. So the church employ him, they were paying a fairly basic salary, and as a result of our donations are now able to pay him a reasonable salary uh, to keep him working full-time, almost as a social worker and a project director down there in Kyalicha. And Wendy herself is also very involved uh, in carrying out that work. Now on the building side, uh, we um, wouldn't dream of putting up the sort of building that they're going to live in, even to keep our garden tools in. But nevertheless, we felt, or rather the local church felt, that it was right that the standard of building should be the same standard as others around them, rather than putting something highly luxurious, uh, moving them out of a tent into that. And so the um, building was put up essentially using second-hand timber, second-hand corrugated iron, because that is what they can afford. And there is some payment made for each of these buildings. The people who uh, live in them uh, pay a down deposit and then a monthly amount until they've paid off for the cost of building materials. The local church, I think, very wisely feels important that they make some financial contribution into that so that it isn't all just a gift from the rich West, as it were. We very quickly discovered a problem when mixing concrete on sand, and that is that the water runs away and disappears. I don't know how they do it, but we wanted to lay concrete bases to establish these buildings on, and so went out and bought some hardboard, and here are some of the fellows working hard to uh, create that concrete base. The size of the building, the floor area, is about four meters square, um, and the height uh, is, as you see, kind of about six foot six, or two meters, depending on which level of currency you're currently using. Rudy here, with his bottom towards us, is a colored guy in the church, whom they've employed now full-time as the building supervisor. And he has two black people. You can see them there. Um, can you remember their names? Christopher and Simon, I think. 
um, who are working with Rudy, and so it's an ongoing project. And I think it's important to stress that the work that we were doing out there was not initiating anything new, but it was providing resource for something the church was already doing. So that when we disappeared, it didn't all suddenly kind of just go down as water in the sand, but they could just carry it on. And we were providing extra labor to help them. And here they are, having made up sectional um, sides and front and back, and putting the second-hand corrugated iron on, which is then transported from the uh, building site that they've created by putting it onto a, a pickup truck that they borrowed. Uh, there's poor Len Underwood on the right there. He leads the Downham Way uh, work. I say poor because on the very last afternoon he had a very bad fall, broke his hip in two places, and hasn't yet come back. He actually comes back on uh, Wednesday. He had to stay over to have his hip plated. Um, he was just working flat out. They were trying to get the last building done, and he had a bad fall sideways onto the concrete. They then took it from the building site uh, down through the very narrow uh, street, as it were, road between the tents and shacks, uh, offloaded it, and started erecting it here. The windows are second-hand. Everything is second-hand. Uh, this is David Pride on the left from Christchurch. We had um, Mick Frisby uh, in the congregation this morning, the leaders of the Christchurch work. Bill Garland, extreme left, a man of 63 who just couldn't work hard enough. And Mike uh, Thompson from Sheffield, the church up in Sheffield that we work with. Having erected it, and it takes about half an hour to put the sides up once you get to that stage, they then put in the roof timbers. See, very second-hand timber, the sort of thing you and I would cut up for firewood. But nevertheless, for those who are going to move in, a real joy. And Roger By there, who leads the work in Sevenoaks, up on the roof, uh, putting on a bit of paint to make it look smart. And that was one that we actually put up. It was the first one that went up while we were there. Uh, that's uh, December's wife. She's not called New Year. Um, <laughs> I think she's called Nita or Alita or some such name. Penny, can you help me? Alita, thank you very much. You may remember when we came back in February, there was a picture of December and Alita with their four children in a tent. That was in the center spread of New Frontiers Update in April. Well, we had the joy then of giving her a more substantial house. This couple are not part of the church. Uh, in fact, Penny, come and tell us the story because you know much more about it than I do. This is uh, Samson and his wife Katrina, and they were a couple that... Roger, who you saw earlier, we were just sort of round in the area and he went in and got chatting to them. And um, they're a very poor old couple. Samson can't walk properly, he's sort of crippled, walks on crutches and his wife is quite ill. And they just had nobody to take care of them at all. He used to work on a farm and when he got old and his legs were bare they threw him off and they lived in a bush for a while, were picked up by the government and brought to Greenpoint and they'd li been living here for a couple of years. So Roger and Craig, one of the other elders, felt very strongly that we ought to build them somewhere to live. So uh, that's what happened. They needed to find somewhere to put them for a couple of days while they built it. And this tent, which is about just four down, the people living in the tent said, yes, sure, we'll have them in to stay with us. How on earth they all got in there, I don't know. Uh, and that is just all their possessions just outside there. And afterwards, they moved back. This is on the last day we were there, which was uh, pretty emotional, really. <laughs> I 
was chatting to Sanson afterwards, and I said, you know, what's it mean to you? And he just said, oh, I wish to thank you so much for my heart for what you've done. So this is the first house I have ever had. And to think that this guy had never actually owned anywhere where he lived before. So, you know, it was a real privilege to get involved in <coughs> A government official uh, on a previous, uh, he's just standing right on the right-hand side here. Uh, he came round with uh, another couple of officials. He works for the CPA, which I think is Cape Provisional uh, Administration. And uh, he, I was talking to him, and he was saying, I just can see that God is with you because of what you're doing. We can't do this as a government. And, and he's a black guy himself, and I think was feeling very frustrated about the situation. So, you know, it's quite encouraging, yeah. And this is Gloria, one of the ladies from the church. Um, at the same time as the old couple moved in, she moved into her house as well. And it's just so great. She led all her friends just dancing around inside her house <laughs> and then came out and sort of sung outside as well. So by the time we left, I think we were all in tears. So. <laughs> Thanks, Penny, very much. Now, one of the other projects that we were involved in uh, sorry, that's the building team. I ought to have stopped. We haven't actually got anyone from Clarendon on that team. One of the other projects we were involved in was a sewing project. And here you've got uh, Sue Herbert from Danehill, just north of Uckfield, learning the African style for carrying babies. Uh, Emily enjoyed being like that. And then Lindsay Pettit, who is from Uckfield, who's got her back to us down here. Her husband, Simon, leads the Uckfield work. Many of you may know uh, those two. <coughs> The sewing project, the whole purpose, was to help create a cottage industry feel. Uh, and there are some women in the church who go down there regularly, uh, designing clothes, designing toys. I brought back an elephant for my little Santa, um, which they can then sell. And they had, while we were there, on the middle Saturday, a market stall in a large, uh, they call it pick and pay. It's a kind of a shopping precinct, I guess you'd call it. And they sold over £100 worth of clothes and toys, which goes straight back to the people who have actually made them. Each item is marked with the lady's name, and she is the one who gets the money for that item. So if she makes it particularly well, and as a result, her work is pillar, that gets reflected in getting the support. Very exciting out of that was the fact that two of the stores in the area came to them and said, from now on, anything you produce, we are prepared to sell for you. And so that now means that there's a regular income available for those who want to work in that particular way, sewing at home, sewing in Farney's house, uh, in order to create uh, a family income. Because there isn't the kind of social security that we're used to over here. South Africa is very much a meeting of the first and third world. And where you've got, at the one extreme, a very high standard of living, you've got at the other extreme a lack of the welfare state. Not totally without support, but in the main a lack of a welfare state. The sewing machines here were given by some Quakers who also have some active work going on in Kyalicha. Then another major project was working with children, and here two Karens <coughs> from uh, the South London churches with Elizabeth, who is a member of the vineyard and who runs a creche every day. And when I say every day, the first child gets dropped there at a quarter to five, and that same child gets picked up at nine o'clock at night. Apart from the fact that the child has had all that time, Elizabeth is on site for all that time, caring for these children. And we found that the team of six who went in made a very real impact into some of these units. Elizabeth's is superb, and all they could do there was to help. But this lass, Char Charlie, as she's often called, or Charlotte, from Sevenoaks, she and Vanda Westwood from Seaford went to another unit 
which doesn't belong to the church and found essentially a hut with bare walls, children sitting there, very regimented, uh, kind of stand up, go to the toilet, come back, sit down, stand up, now's the time to have your food, all thoroughly regimented. And they came back after the first day virtually in tears. As a result, the next day they went in with colored paper, colored crayons, glue, uh, all sorts of things, and they said to the leader, look, could we just share some of this with you? And the leader was delighted because she really didn't know how to look after the children. And so they got to work, and at the end of the second day, they had the wall covered with masterpieces, the children's faces covered in paint, glue, and smiles. And at the end of the time there, apparently this leader said to them, thank you so much for teaching me how to do this. Now I can go on. One feels that that's investment into the lives of those young children. Then there is also a nutrition unit, Pulani, which costs the vineyard something like 1,500 rands a month, which is about 400 pounds, and which is one of the projects that we're hoping to be able to subsidize with them. Pulani is a nutrition unit. Also, they train people in gardening. First of all, on the nutrition side, here's one of the little children, thoroughly undernourished. About 50% of the children under six are estimated to be undernourished or malnourished in the township of Kailicha. And so the mums are taught uh, with their children how to prepare good food, nutritional food, and they stay there with the children for part or all of the day. Then out at the back, you've got this woman in blue who is very aptly called Primrose, who teaches them how to garden in what I can only say are horrendous conditions. Is Hillary around? Can you confirm that sand is not the best way of uh, growing stuff? Sorry? Dreadful, she said. But what they do is to line a kind of a piece of ground about the size of a door with some sort of sheeting and then throw in all their old rubbish, refuse from other food that they've had and create something of a better soil in which you can grow stuff, as you can see. And as we went around the township, you did find kind of corn on the cob growing and tomato plants and so on in conditions that, well, I certainly couldn't grow it, but that's no great standard. I can't grow it in an ordinary garden. And now I'm going to hand over to Mike to share a little bit about the evangelism program. This shot here just uh, gives you an idea, again, of the rows um, that you'd find people living in. And the uh, two young lads just sort of carrying water. There would be a tap at each end of the row. Uh, and in fact, rows shared a tap. So if you wanted to go for water, you had a long walk. And this would be a very unusual photograph in that most of them would carry the water on their head, uh, carry anything on their head. What we were doing is we deliberately started off our open-air work around where they were building. Um, it's just a coincidence, I might add at this point, that all the five of us who went from Clarendon, apart from Nigel and Terry, were involved in the evangelism team. The, um, uh, the, the, there was Richard Corp, um, Ruth Costick, there was myself, there was Lex, and Alistair, Alistair Duncan as well. So it was terrific just to work together, and we worked with a group of nine others, so making 14 in all, um, from seven different churches. And also, that, that 14, many of them had not done any evangelism at all. Um, you know, there were some with a bit of experience, but most of us hadn't done very much at all. So we simply uh, moved in where the guys were building, and um, 
we'd rehearsed a few songs from a day in South Lee, um, which we tried to make as um, near to being coser as possible, which is the language, but they weren't at all. Uh, and off we went, and we started to sing. And the amazing thing was, as we started to do that, um, we, the, the open air very quickly gathered numbers. As you can see here, this would be a typical thing. Uh, when we were just rehearsing for drama, you just get a crowd. Uh, it was very, very exciting and very, very fright frightening at times as well. And daunting. You didn't know where it was going to go at all. Very much in God's hands. But we would sing, and then we would ask folks there. Fortunately, we had three or four people, John and Twana, who Nigel has mentioned, and others um, in the area. This is an area in this row where quite a few members of the black congregation lived. And uh, they would help us out with a bit of English, and then they started to teach songs. And, and off we went. And very soon, this is again just a sort of another view of the crowd that would gather very quickly. And then afterwards, we would just um, be praying for the, the sick. Uh, we felt particularly constrained to preach... Uh, a healing message as well as God's uh, plan of salvation and his justice for the nations the, the chap with the microphone is December, Nigel uh, mentioned him earlier on and uh, he is just uh, speaking to the crowd that came forward uh, and then it, you just didn't know what was going on um, here we are just praying for people and you would just pray and you would try and gather somebody who spoke a bit of English to find out what to pray for and very quickly, one of the first pers person to be healed was a lady called Agnes. Uh, she was a Christian. Uh, she had a very bad pain uh, in her mouth, uh, tooth pain, I suppose, and, and pain all over her body, and particularly in the side of her body. And uh, we prayed for her, and the pain left immediately. It just left immediately. And the skeptics among us, including me, uh, asked, are you sure you're all right? Uh, <laughs> those of us experienced in praying for the sick in Churchill Square uh, are not quite used to this. Um, and, and yet it happened straight away. And from that point on, th there would be people just coming to us all the time. We would spend all day up here in, at uh, Kailisha in Greenpoint. And it was just like living in the New Testament for two weeks. Um, you know, where it says, that, and people came to Jesus. And you'd just be sitting down to eat your sandwiches. You'd already given half of them away because you had to when you were in that situation. And uh, you're just going to eat your sandwich, and someone will come, would you come now to this tent to pray for me, my, my auntie or whatever is sick? And off you go. And it would be like that all the time. Uh, here's Lex, just um, let's pray with this lady, I guess. I'm not too sure what he's doing here, but just... Uh, <laughs> he'd just given out a card. We had a little sort of white leaflet with names and addresses from people who lived um, in Kailisha, including Farnes, uh, who were Christians, and that they could contact. Uh, here again is a, a lady, Just to, she was a member of the Vineyard Church, and uh, this guy here was a Rastafarian, as, or still is, as you can see. Um, but uh, he was interested in Jesus. And there was quite a, quite a few um, sort of praying against demons, but it was mainly in a sort of quieter way. And uh, in this case, it was... Uh, we, we, we prayed later for him. This lady, along with another, another lady, Angela and Sue, um, had been gone into the black townships even when there was quite a bit of trouble in months gone by on a regular basis, um, which is very, very um, exciting. This is Agnes here with her Bible. Um, she, she, she just radiates Jesus, this lady. 
And she was, as I say, the first lady that we saw healed. And uh, she was a very much a model that caused many more people to come to us to pray for healing. We recorded 22 sort of larger healings in the sense of lameness, deafness, um, beginnings of, of blindness, become, becoming sight. And there must have been at least 50 other healings that we would call more sort of minor ones. You know, from headaches and pains in the whole body and <coughs> stiff backs and things like that. And as I say, most of them, when you prayed, they just went instantly. Not always, but a large number did. These are just, again, some of the, uh, the folk that would gather around the open air, and uh, you'd just spend the next few hours just talking to them. Here was just uh, Alistair with his uh, back to us, and a group from the... Uh, Dave with the beard, who sort of taught us a few dramas. And so we would use times in between... Um, open airs and talking to people just to rehearse some drama. They love drama. They really get into it. And uh, some of the dramas that we use in open air we found appropriate, some weren't. And uh, we particularly spent time every day just sort of putting together a drama that depicted the, sort of the parable of the sower and so forth and so forth. Um, also, we had the opportunity of building things into the church. Uh, this evening was a an evening on evangelism. Ben Davis uh, took a seminar on evangelism. Uh, Phil Rogers took an, a seminar on worship. And Dave Holden spoke um, and other seminars as well. And um, in this one here, I, would, I just helped Ben do part of the evangelism one. And we were just, uh, again, investing into people's lives and very much realizing that we weren't going there initiating anything ourselves, uh, but carrying on from where the church, what the church was doing and again, investing into people's lives so they could be better equipped to carry on. Now, up to that point, all of our time had been in Greenpoint, the place where Nigel was mentioning. And during those few days, we made a conscious decision early into, sec into the second week to not go and, and talk to any more new people because we'd gathered too many already for the church to follow up. And we had, at this point, about 100 names from the Greenpoint Kylie Shuria. Many of them had expressed a commitment to Christ. Uh, I said the majority of them had experienced a measure of healing. Uh, let me give you an example of this. There was a lady called Mavis, who uh, we were just, she came along to the open air, and Lex and a couple of others prayed for her, prayed two or three times. Uh, she had a problem with deafness in one ear. It was, it was more or less totally deaf. And after they prayed two or three times, she could hear just as well in the ear as in the other sound ear. Now, the next morning... She had walked from Greenpoint to Farney's house and she was there when our bus arrived. We, we were picked up um, in Weinberg. We took this sort of 35-minute journey out to Kailisha and we dropped some of the ladies off who were sewing and so forth at Greenpoint, I mean at Farney's home. And there was this lady, uh, Mavis, there with a big smile over her face. And so she'd come all that way because of Jesus had healed her to help out with the sewing. Uh, later on, we'd heard that she'd got a, um, a job for one day a week. As you can imagine, many had asked for us to pray for them to get a job. Um, you know, it was quite desperate. 60 to 7%, 70% unemployment amongst the men. So it was quite desperate. So she'd heard that, and then as a few more days went by, she said that she'd heard in a month's time, I believe, that she would have a job five days a week. And a parting comment, and I think I remember this for all of my life, she said, this Jesus is wonderful. He says he heals you, he gives you life, he gives you friendship, and he gives you a job. 
That's terrific, isn't it? So that, that was all of our work at Greenpoint. And then the other part um, was we went out. John and Twana is actually going to move to another uh, black township, uh, which is a much more of a settled township. Um, buildings, as you can see in the background. This would be like a, a, a sort of a bus near a bus station, a bit of a market going on here. And we went and did an open air here. Um, and just there was about, I think, 20 of us, um, with, with 14 and about 10 folks from the vineyard who were white. There was a, a minibus full that came in from Kyalisha. And there were a few Christians actually in this township called Langer. And we started this open air. And this is a shot taken from a, from a distance away. And there must have been at least 120 people gathered round. And uh, we performed some dramas and spoke to them. Here's Dave and Stuart and Ben laughing in the background. Um, just as the drama was taking place, we, um, these are the people, just the attentiveness of the, of the people was very marked. Just preaching here and obviously preaching through um, John translating. He was tremendous. He would, you, he would speak as you spoke. You didn't have to speak in sentences and stop. He would just interpret more or less simultaneously all the way through. And uh, we, in this case, we had three or four people preaching, and then just people came forward to be prayed, for, prayed with. And let me say this again. Just because people come forward, the same as in our country, it doesn't mean to say they were becoming Christians, but they were definitely expressing a need uh, in their life, whether it was for healing, whether it was they were a Christian already and they'd, they'd be interested in joining the church, or many of them was, just that I want to know more about becoming a Christian. And there was suddenly about 46 people that you were, you were needing to pray with. Uh, you know, what do you do? I mean, that was really, really a question that you kept asking yourself. And so you divided up. Um, the folk from Kailisha got stuck in and you started to pray for people. Uh, and it's just, this would just be typical. And this would then go on for about an hour after the open air had started, just praying for people and gathering their names and then following them up a bit later on. So here's Farney just praying for a lady. Um, it's very, very exciting. The, three days later, we went back uh, one evening, late at night, into Langer, and uh, we divided into sort of threes or fours. Uh, each party had a, a, one of, a black Christian with us, and we went back to follow these people up. And that, to me, was one of the most exciting times. It was one of the most nerve-wracking times as well. Um, you know, one of, a couple of us sort of bumped into a black policeman, and he smiled, and he said, you shouldn't really be here. It's very dangerous. And you think, thank you, Lord, please, please be with us. And, uh, and some of us, we ran out of follow-up names, and we just simply went cold and knocked on people's doors. And I tell you, it's completely different to doing door-to-door work in England, that you just knock on the door and you walk in. And that's it. And they come round and they sit there talking. And even on that night, we led two or three people to the Lord, just doing that, genuinely to the Lord. You know, it's very, very exciting. This is just uh, what um, Farney's wife, just sort of giving out some literature. That yellow booklet would be what we gave to people. Um, and as I say, what we, we accomplished was we gave about 100 extra names to the Kailisha congregation, so more or less doubling their potential congregation. And in the township called Langer, we uh, had given them 50 names. And Craig, one of the uh, elders there, said to us, look, you, you, in your two weeks here with us, that as well as giving us all those names in Greenpoint, you've helped us to plant a church or a congregation actually in the township of Langer. So it was very, very exciting. And 
very worthwhile. This is just um, part of the, the team here, the full-time team. There's um, Roger, nearest to you. There's um, John and Twana, the guy moving to Langer. And then there's Craig, who leads uh, one of the congregations, one of the uh, four other congregations of the Vineyard Church, and uh, also heads up evangelism. How he does both, I don't know. But that's, uh, that's what he's doing at the moment. And, and I, why I'm showing you this is because, uh, just, just to end with, there is, we really are building into people's lives. And as I say, we didn't initiate anything that's not been started by the Vineyard Church. We just simply went and, and concentrated and, and intensified because of the Party of 50, the work that's already going on. And it will continue as we leave. This, this is a guy called Theo. This is my last part now. Um, who uh, has access into a resource center uh, in Kailisha. And we went there twice. And to some older people, they meet there once a week. This is a group coming out from the resource center. Quite a contrast, as you see, to the tented area not very far away. And it was with these people that we saw some amazing healings. I, there's some of the most significant healings I've seen at the moment in my Christian life. Uh, this lady, Cynthia, we're praying with her, and she had lost one eye in a car accident. The other one, she could barely see through. She wore, wore spectacles um, over these two eyes, and she could barely see my face uh, through this heavily cataract uh, eye. And we prayed for her. We prayed that the cataract would disperse. We pray that the power of God would fall on her and that uh, healing would take place. And uh, we prayed two or three times for this lady. And uh, at the end, she said, I can see your face now without using the glasses. And then she came back next week to the um, resource center and the cataract at least is 60% dispersed from her eye. And she was seeing better and better as each day went by. It was very, very thrilling. Just a, a couple of more quick stories there that Lex had prayed uh, for this um, older gentleman who, who basically was lame. And uh, as they prayed for him, he described it in a very graphic way. It was like hearing Rice Krispies go off on his legs. Uh, and it was, it was just like he's exploding and you just saw muscles rippling all down his legs. And so this man who could not walk uh, very well, it's like it's all hunched up. At the end, he was doing this as we prayed for him. It was very, very exciting, and many other healings actually took place there. Thank you very much. I'd just like to read this to you, and then I believe God has something to say to us. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, <coughs> the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Now, we saw that happen, other than the dead being raised. I mean, everything in that passage we saw with our own eyes. The 14 of us on the evangelism team, many of whom had never done any evangelism before. Most of us had never seen anyone healed before. And I believe God will say to us that the gospel message that we have entrusted in our lives is, an, is a message that when we proclaim it, people will hear something, but they'll also see something. And I would encourage each one of you to pray for the sick. I would say to you that I think at least 99% of the healings that we saw were on non-Christians. I'll just repeat. They were on non-Christians. And so I would encourage you at work, um, at school, at college, with your neighbours, with your family, 
to ask God to, to, pray, to give you the power and the boldness and the expectancy that God can heal them. Now, start where you are, but uh, I, I would say that to you. And I would also say that we have a magnificent gospel to give away. We are beginning to pray for the sick in our open ears. We did it at five ways on Saturday. Okay, not a great deal at the moment, but we are beginning to pray for the sick in our open air meetings. So I, I, I would think God would say to us, let's expect what some of the things that I've had the privilege of talking to you about in South Africa. Let's expect God to do that in our towns. And the last thing I'd like to say is that everything that we, we were able to do really was because of who you are, because of what God has done for us collectively. That, uh, okay, only a few of us went this time, but it could have been anybody, really, sitting here tonight that, that, that have gone. And the message that we had to say, the relevancy of the message was because of what God is doing here in Brighton and Hove. And it's terrific to be a part of it, isn't it? You know, we are a witness uh, to the nations. And God has only just started working here and he's going to do a mighty thing. So that's really what I wanted to say. Thanks, Mike. I'm going to ask Terry to come up now if you just talk about the church and the leadership. And while he's coming up, just to say that I spent a few days with Pete and Hetty and they send their love to you all. It was good to see them. They're alive and well. Pete's grown a beard. Uh, they're living in Johannesburg at the moment. We went down to the Transkei with them. They particularly said, would we send their love to all their friends here at Clarendon? All that we've seen so far has come about because the church led by Graham Ingram has established a secure base out from which they can do this work. And the other section team that went out that I led was to serve the church, the leadership, and to encourage and guide and help them in the work that they are doing. As has already been said this evening, when I first went out to Graham's church in, I think it was 83, they were about 200 strong. Uh, now on the Sunday night celebration we attended, there were 700 there. And so they've grown from two to something like 700 over those few years. And there are many, many things they need to be handling wisely to handle that kind of growth. We believe that God spoke to us some while ago that... Uh, there was a wide door of opportunity across South Africa to speak, and we've had the opportunity over these last few years to speak to literally hundreds of leaders and literally thousands of people in celebrations from uh, Johannesburg through Durban, East London, Port Elizabeth, uh, and right down to uh, Cape Town itself. I felt God said to us, but you must earth it somewhere because you're speaking to thousands at celebrations, you're speaking to hundreds of leaders in conferences, but there must be a, a sample, an example, of the sort of church life you're talking about. And so the last two or three visits, we've not traveled so widely, but I've given our time to the Cape Town Church, which Graham leads, called the Vineyard. It's interesting also that in Cape Town, there are about four other churches that have taken serious note of the blessing that there is with Graham and the church there. And even in this last visit, another large church has asked to get fully identified with us. And another asked me along to meet with their elders uh, with the possibility of that coming 
further as well. A nearby church in Stellenbosch is uh, thinking very, very similarly. So it is possible that in Cape Town there could be some three or four churches that we're working very specifically to. Now, they are struggling with some of the problems of growing pains. And some of the things that we experience and face and find answers to through prayer and waiting on God and counsel and fellowship, we're able to take to them. So our counsel is very, very practical. Some of the things God has said to us in elders' prayer times here and waiting on God during the day, <clears throat> we found are very relevant for them. For instance, at our Sussex uh, pastor's prayer morning oh, a few months ago, God said to us, we must get out of a, a vegetable garden mentality to move on to a farming mentality. If we carried uh, the idea that you would have in a vegetable garden of watering every potato plant and digging everyone up and making sure you got that very last potato, etc., the sort of pastoral care that some men were uh, bringing to small churches uh, in this country when they were just 20 or 30 people, and now they're talking about two or 300, had to change their mentality. So now with Graham, he's got to change his mentality from a 200 church to a 700 and pressing on, etc. So one is helping them with all sorts of key issues about delegation, about looking for a team of ministries, uh, making sure they don't give their emphasis uh, even too much to Kyalicha. Uh, that's a huge social need. They're battling with huge problems like how much do they pay Farney? Do they pay him the same as their other full-time men? If they do, that will put him out of the reach of the rest of his congregation who will be much, much poorer than their pastor. If they don't, they are distinguishing between their white full-time elders and their black full-time elders. They battle with these things all the time, huge pressures and problems. Uh, in that church, they have elders, some of whom are black, or at least Farney is black. They have uh, uh, Alan, who is colored. They have other guys who are white. They've got English-speaking. They've got some men from an Afrikaans background. So they've got the whole spectrum in that one church. It is a very, very key church in South Africa. I think that's reflected in the fact that when we had a pastor's uh, day retreat, inviting men in full-time ministry from across Cape Town to come, and I was uh, invited to speak to them, uh, Graham said there were over 120 people turned up to that meeting that morning. Now, in the past, when I've spoken to groups of pastors in Cape Town, the numbers have never been much above 30 or 40. And I believe it's because of the growth, the blessing, the security of what God's doing there that others are saying, let's go and see what's happening amongst these men. And there was opportunity to address them. Also, there was a pastor's conference in East London where something in the region, I believe, of some 300 full-time men from right across South Africa recently gathered and some men were invited to speak. Graham was one of the speakers and the reports that came back was that his was the key word that was given from, uh, for a national conference. And so what God's given us there is a beacon testimony that is reaching right across the nation. It was great to be there. And our uh, counsel to them... Uh, gave us many sessions. Dave Holden and I spend a lot of time sitting, talking with their elders, talking about changes they must make. They're struggling in some of their congregational context. Their evening, they celebrate every Sunday night. 
And it's that Sunday night celebration that's growing and growing and growing. They're pulling in masses of students, Cape Town being a student town, uh, among other things. Uh, but they're having problems elsewhere. We're speaking into those sort of issues. The other church we were invited to serve, I had a two-day retreat with their elders, uh, a church led by a guy called Derek Morphew. I took John Hammond and Simon Pettit with me uh, because Dave Holden, Rogers and um, Ben were doing evening seminars on evangelism, uh, worship and renewing the mind. Some people said that who went to Dave Holden's seminars on the renewing of the mind, that was really life-changing experience for them. I was so blessed by what he did there. I was away with these elders from another church uh, on one of those evenings and there again we had to handle issues that they're facing. You may sometimes wonder, what do you do when you sit with pastors and you visit their churches? Well, I know when I first went out there, this was the strongest church. It was about 500 strong, had about six congregations. Now it's dropped down to just under 300. Uh, they've only got, I think it's now three congregations. They'd lost two of their congregations. We could see all kinds of weakness coming in, lack of expressing oneness. One of their congregations wasn't even called by a regional name. It was just called Olive Branch. They hadn't failed to build in their sense of oneness, that they were one people. They'd yielded to all kinds of looseness. They were somewhat against being well organized in the name of liberty. Uh, they were somewhat reactionary to the so-called faith churches that we get in South Africa, which are very organized, very uh, uh, on the move, and they're a bit frightened of some of their emphases, and they've tended to swing to a place where they're much more casual and careless, and one has to address those things. And I had to say to them, look, you are missing the way, you've gone wrong on these things, unless you make these changes, you will not make success, you must bring it back in, you must do this and this. And so one is directing them how to build, and that's the sort of counsel that they are asking for. Now, they're into what I've got in mind here is disorganized grace. <laughs> it's very laid back, and one needed to really challenge them and teach them more that the grace of God does not mean we're careless, and that discipline does not mean legalism, and uh, to speak into these issues uh, to help them to get through. And so one found that that was uh, a really worthwhile time with them. So they're looking for that kind of help. They're looking for that kind of direction. And then the other churches went to a place called Pinelands. I had an evening with their uh, elders, <clears throat> that other church. And then there's a church at Mitchell's Plain, another three or four hundred strong who may well be coming in. And so on our mornings, the two Sunday mornings, several of the pastors who went with us, Roger By, Simon Pettit, John Hammond, Brian Toombs, Len Underwood, and so on, they were preaching around the congregations, as well as Dave, uh, Phil Rogers, uh, Ben and I. So they were all preaching on Sunday mornings around the churches. And then on the two Sunday nights we were down there, the first Sunday night there was a vineyard celebration uh, where we had, as I say, about 700 people absolutely packed into this schoolroom. And then the second Sunday night uh, there was a, a joint celebration where we hired a hall and three or four churches were represented, packed into a very big meeting. Must have been uh, around the 1,200 mark of people there. And uh, we had a good time in those, com in those uh, celebrations. So we're hitting it on f several fronts. It was fascinating to see the overlap so that the builders 
drew a crowd and people say, what is this all about? Then Mike and the team were up evangelizing and the word was that there was such a buzz in that part of Kailicha Township because there was so much good being done, the good works, how Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. There was that doing good in so many ways as well as preaching and healing. Uh, my last weekend, I went up to Johannesburg. There was a change of plans, and I went to see Dudley Daniel. Some of you have heard Dudley. He's been here and preached. Uh, he's now got a large uh, church in Bryanston in Johannesburg. And I had what turned out to be a very, very uh, key time with him. It was extraordinary, really, because one lady in his church, he's going through a very tough time. We hadn't planned to go to Johannesburg at all. And Dave and I at the end were just wondering, Lord, what's happening? Because our plans were being changed. Uh, we had to fly out of Johannesburg. So in the end, I phoned Dudley and said, look, if we came through Joburg, would it be good? Would you like us to preach? Well, he jumped at it. And so we flew up on the Saturday and I preached to his people on the Sunday and really felt great freedom in the word. And uh, uh, it was a word to Christians, but Dave Holden said about 150 stood at the end to the word. There must have been, I suppose, something like 700 people. I really felt great freedom uh, in ministering that morning. And then later in the day, Dudley told me that one of his ladies had said to him, I've seen a vision of you sitting talking with Terry Virgo. And uh, he didn't even know we were around. And we phoned up and said, uh, later in the week, can I come? He said, oh, great, come, you know. So it was great to not only preach for him, but also spend all Sunday afternoon. He poured out his heart some things that he needed counsel and fellowship about. So we really felt God was leading us amongst the leaders there. Just one last thing, really, before... Uh, winding up about South Africa, God did speak to us about an armada of churches, uh, churches working together. Just to underline what was said earlier, 18 churches were represented. And what God said to us in the prophecy which made us uh, follow this armada picture was that you can do things together that you cannot do alone. There was no way that we as a church at Clarendon could have done that alone. But we just sent the letter out through the churches saying, would any like to come? And from 18 churches, uh, that team gathered. Now, it was so exciting to me. And they were not handpicked. We didn't say, right, this, you've got to have special qualifications, special people. It was like, there's the bucket, we'll scoop out some. And what thrilled me was the common values which held strangers together and made them friends almost overnight that they hold values about the church, the purpose of God in our generation, reaching out, etc. Those values immediately came together. There was a wide age range uh, from Bill, 63, 64, working so hard from morning to night. And when he finished one of the houses and saw people moving in, just stood there weeping to think that people were going to live in just that shack right through to uh, very young people out there, but excellent. I mean, in the coach going out on the two days off that they gave us, the two Mondays, just hilarious laughter, fun, and the sense of being knit together. I was in Christchurch on Wednesday and Thursday of this week where four of the party came from, and they're saying, uh, the 64-year-old will be next year. He said, what are, you, what are we doing next year? You know, are you going again? And, of course, we're not quite sure yet what God's got for us on that front. I was talking to Duncan 
Watkinson on the phone this week from Bombay and telling him about the party that went out and, and saying, you know, we must pray about are there things like that we can do in India? He said, well, we must really pray about it. Actually, it wouldn't cost so much to go to India. But there are obviously terrible, terrible needs out there. We've just got to sense God's leading. But it is in keeping with the word of the Lord that came to us that as we become an armada, we will do things we cannot do alone. We will have clout uh, together. And to see just those various gifts, to see we could take a Mayat who could do that and lead an evangelistic team. We could do, take Ben who could do teaching on evangelism as well. We could take Phil Rogers who could put on music worship seminars. We could take Dave Holden with his ministry. We could take a diversity. John Hammond prophesying over left, right and centre. Um, it was a superb team. And yet I know just looking across all the people that God has given us to work with now, it could have been any other group of people and we would have seen uh, God doing it again. There's such a, a, a blessing in being related across the churches in the way that God has now led us. And such resources if we will stay obedient to God and sensitive to his promptings. And so, just uh, I don't think we've got time to sort of have questions or anything now, but uh, just to uh, say what a great time we had there, what a blessing it was there. I want any of the others who went, we haven't given you time, it may not be time uh, to have lengthy uh, voice in, but would any of you others who went like to say anything which you feel we've left out? <laughs> uh, anything? I just don't want to ride over it. We're saying that's fine. Any key thing? You think, well, if only you'd said that. No? Okay, can't see Ruth. Where's Ruth? Mm -hmm. Alice, some of you have spoken congregationally, I know. But it was, it was great. And thank you so much for your prayers as we went in that way. Mm -hmm. Sorry? Yes. Okay. All right. So we may well be going um, again. David Holden is going in April, most certainly, with a small leadership team again. But we need to know from God. We'll ask you to pray very seriously about whether we are meant to go into Kyalicha in a similar way again. One of the problems they face is that the social need is so vast it could pull all their resources. But their testimony is a much bigger one than that. It's just one aspect of all that they've called upon to do. So please will you uh, pray about it, keep informed about it, and uh, if you'd like to write letters to folk, I'm sure we could arrange to give you names and addresses and things of that sort. But we do want you to more and more uh, feel that you own uh, that vision. While we were in South Africa, it's very thrilling to know that uh, Dave was also out in Canada following God's leading for a particular sphere of ministry that was opening up for him there. And I'm going to ask Dave uh, if he'd like to come and share now how he got on in Canada. Well, what a thrilling report that was. And while the people in South Africa were baking under a hot sun. I flew into Toronto into sub-zero temperatures, snow on the ground, and great. <laughs> uh, two years ago, I was invited to minister in the YWAM School of Creative Ministry in Cambridge, Ontario. 
And rising out of that came the invitation to speak in a church in a place called Barry, which is about 100 miles north of Toronto. And um, while there, I found myself, I was ministering on the Sunday morning, speaking prophetically into their church situation without really knowing anything about it. I found God just overtook me in the word that I was bringing and found that I was speaking right into their situation. And as a result of that, the pastor at the end stood up and with tears in his eyes said, we've heard from God this morning, this church will never be the same again, which was quite an amazing statement to make on one meeting. And as a result of that, he and I spent several hours together talking and I was sharing the vision of restoration and speaking to him about the things that God is doing in England. And I soon discovered that that particular part of Canada anyway, Ontario, which is uh, a state which is about five times the size of England, so it's a pretty enormous place, I discovered really that there is not very much going on in terms of the restoration vision. The church situation there is that there is the Pentecostal church and there are a few mega churches which are into the whole kind of faith message. There's those kind of churches. And then there are Pentecostal churches which are pretty dead. And then there is a kind of conservative evangelicalism. But in terms of restoration, there's not really very much happening at all. And as I began to share with Ian, he said, Oh, I would love to come over to England and meet you, but could you come back again? So John Wilthew and I went out um, back in May and had a tremendous time with him then. And what has happened since my first visit is that he's taken the whole church through how to join the church. He started to build a committed church. Um, he's been ministering on the th- uh, in Terry's book, so I hope I get a credit for that. <laughs> and um, really, what, what's been happening is that from a church of 400 loosely, loosely joined together people, he's found that about 200 have left, but he's actually beginning to build a committed church of around 200 people. And on my visit this time, it was very encouraging and exciting to see the kind of growth that has come into that church, and uh, so much so that they have actually planted out a small congregation into the next town. And uh, that's a really very, uh, a, a very exciting phase for them. I found God's help very much in that situation. And uh, it, it's, it's tremendous to sense the whole move of God's spirit amongst us at the moment in terms of healing. And I found that in each situation that I was in, um, God was confirming the word with signs and wonders. And I saw in, in the, the time that I was there more healings I think, than I've ever seen before in my own ministry, personally. On the Sunday morning in Barry, God broke in very sovereignly in the worship time, and uh, there wasn't time for preaching the word. There were many people who were healed, so that was tremendous. I went on from from Barry to a place called Owen Sound, which is about um, 60 or 70 miles away from Barry, a place on, on, um, uh, on Georgian Bay, a very beautiful holiday area and uh, one of the things that about Ontario is that although it's a large country it is quite sparsely populated and it, it really consists of lots uh, of towns 
um, that are about the size of Seaford. A, a town, Seaford side, would, size, would actually be quite a big town over there. There's Toronto, which is a big city. There's Hamilton and there's Cambridge Kitchener. But they are the three main big towns. All the other towns in this huge country around the size of Seaford. And in this particular town in Owen Sound, there's a young man by the name of David Campbell who was actually the, the pastor of, the, of Emmanuel Church in Durham and had done a good work there in establishing a church. But he's now building this church in Owen Sound and he's got around 40 people with him. Now that sounds quite small, but actually the commitment, the level of commitment that he's built in means that when he has a midweek meeting, 40 people are there. And uh, that is the pattern through the, their church life. There's a, a strong sense of, of building in restoration values, the kind of values that we would hold. Now, one of the exciting things is that I've been instrumental in bringing Ian Wilson and David Campbell together. And they are beginning to relate together, to meet together, to pray together. It's interesting that, that the situation there is about like England was in pre-papal days. They're even singing the same songs. <laughs> and uh, that they haven't had any sort of idea of having a, a Bible week or anything like that. And I shared with, with them about the early days of restoration and capel and getting a lot of people together from lots of backgrounds, but getting a committed platform and sharing a common vision. We talked about that. And um, it's very thrilling to see how these two brothers have begun to support each other. And what they are going to do is to hold joint celebrations, bringing the two churches together. Both men are very clear men, bringing their two churches together in celebrations to touch that whole of the, the mid-Ontario area. So it's been a, a great privilege to feel part of that. I believe one of the things that God is going to do with the, three men in the two men in eldership with Ian Wilson is actually bring them over here and they are looking at their diaries and, and going to consider the possibility of maybe coming over to Clarendon. What they said was they would like to see the model. So um, um, I, I really do believe that um, we'll be seeing them coming over here and, and um, looking at the way God has been building things here. From... Um, from Canada, I flew down to Washington where I, I spent a weekend at Covenant Life Church with C.J. Mahaney and uh, the brothers there. And that, that was a tremendous time. Stuart Townend joined me out there and we had a time with the musicians from Covenant Life. And then I led the worship on Sunday morning with Stuart helping me. And then we had a time afterwards with C.J. and the, the worship leaders just talking about worship and uh, uh, imparting some of the things that God has been showing us here. So that was a tremendous time. And from there, I went back to Canada. And one of, one of uh, um, the thrilling things that's happened for me personally is that the album, Empire Resplendent, has just been released in Canada. And apparently, there are advanced orders from bookshops from the whole, all over the whole of Canada. And uh, the head of scripture in song there... Uh, is also now talking about the possibility of having Worship Restored published over there as well. And as a result of that, uh, he has invited me to go over next year to do a worship conference in Ontario that takes in three cities, Hamilton, Toronto and uh, Ottawa, and 
there is a remote possibility that I'll be able to take some musicians with me. That will be to give some teaching on worship um, in a, a kind of uh, broader setting. But I did say to him that if you ask me about worship, you know that I will talk about building the church and restoring the church because I see those two things going together. And it, what it looks as though will happen is that a conference will be set up whereby I'll be able to sort of go in on the praise and worship ticket, but actually it will be very much, <laughs> very much in line with the kind of thing that David Campbell and Ian Wilson are beginning to, to see in terms of bringing people together, um, holding celebrations and envisioning people in the whole restoration message. So really it is a bit of a backwater spiritually, but God is beginning to move there. I met many other leaders of other churches, some sympathetic, some not so sympathetic, but um, I believe God's going to do a, a great work out there in Ontario. When I came back from Canada, I went off immediately to Kimmel Hall in North Wales, where I was with Graham Kendrick and Ian Trainer, um, doing a, a worship conference, and it really was a very remarkable weekend there were, in the conference, 30% Anglicans, 30% Baptists, and 30% house church, with 10% odds and ends from various places. But what was so remarkable was that in the times of worship, there was such a tremendous unity. It really was quite extraordinary in times of singing in the Spirit and prophetic singing and, and ministering on the whole area of worship. And it gave me great encouragement for the body of Christ in this nation. It really opened my eyes that God is doing something much bigger than is happening here. Thank God for all that he's doing here. But actually, he's doing something that is really tremendous in this nation. And it was wonderful to have friend, uh, a, a good relationship with, with Graham Kendrick and Ian Trainer. We felt there was one evening where the three of us led the worship with any preparation and it was just one up on the platform, then the other one, and we were just kind of swapping, prophetic singing, exchanging um, one with another, and the worship time went on for nearly three hours. It was, it was wonderful. <laughs> no preaching to get in. <laughs> it was great. And... Uh, <laughs> shame to John. We had preaching the next day. <laughs> and then... From there, I went on to Lincoln, where I was with the, the Grapevine Church, um, which um, Terry, Terry was with them last year, preaching at their celebration. And I had a, a time with Chris Bowater and also the leaders of the Grapevine Church. And what was tremendous there was in the evening, when I was sharing with the leadership on spiritual warfare, again, the Spirit of God came down. And one of the things that happened was that I prayed that a spirit of prayer would come on the leadership there. And what has been happening with us recently, with God moving on us and, and us all praying together, that began to happen amongst them. And then as everybody was beginning to pray together, words of knowledge came, there were some quite remarkable healings, people being freshly touched with the Holy Spirit. There are many, many, many healing stories that I could share with you that, that God has been doing over the last few weeks. But... Just to, to finish by reading a scripture to you, it's about Paul who said that he was not boasting beyond his, beyond his measure, that is in other men's labours, but with the hope 
that as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. And one of the things that I feel about ministries going out from here is that we are actually very dependent on what God does here. That as your faith increases, so our sphere of ministry and our faith is enlarged. And there is a very close relationship between what God is doing here and about the ministries that are going out in, in taking what God is doing here on a much broader scale. Thank you very much for your prayers. I've really felt very much borne up by your prayers. It's been quite a hard slog, really. I preached 21 times in 21 days, and at the end of it, I was pretty exhausted. But I, I did feel very much borne up by the, by the presence of God. Thank you for your prayers and for your encouragement. It's good to be back home. The growing prayer burden that God's giving to his church at large is being witnessed about quite widely. And I was with the Charismatic Leaders Conference last week, and there, with some 50 uh, folk in leadership, was hearing stories of a growing number of people in prayer. For instance, Nick Cuthbert, who wrote the book Arise and Build, recently <coughs> gathered 1,200 people uh, for four hours of prayer in Birmingham, uh, praying for the nation, and uh, he sensed that God was powerfully with them. Rob White, British Youth for Christ uh, National Director, said that he's just done a tour in the north of England and in Scotland, among young people essentially, but at the end of each session inviting young people who wanted to more particularly give themselves to prayer, to respond to the ministry, and he was saying that scores of young people up and down the country are saying they want to give themselves more to prayer. Uh, Nick Cuthbert himself has now booked the National Exhibition Centre for next March or April, I've forgotten which day at the moment. Um, that's a 12,000-seater uh, for a day of prayer uh, there in the Midlands, in the heart of the nation. And there is that sense that God is moving by his spirit, but also the awareness of conflict growing. You know about the David Alton bill in connection with abortion. He has been having meetings up and down the country, and in nearly every one, there have been block bookings of hostile people who've come into meetings, screaming, shouting, making it almost impossible for him to communicate. Uh, now, recently, Lyndon Bowring whose wife was at the Charismatic Leaders Conference, Lyndon wasn't able to make it this time, uh, he managed to book up the Royal Albert Hall in the week prior to the reading of the David Alton Bill, and uh, he uh, just amazed to find there was a gap, because it's, it's about 18 months ahead booked up normally, but he's uh, found a gap there, and now they've booked the Royal Albert Hall for a day of prayer and praise in the run-up to that important event at Westminster. Again, they're praying seriously about the whole feel of that day and hoping it won't get uh, to just be a, a, a noisy confrontation, but a time when uh, God is moving. Others in the nation, uh, like the Intercessors for Britain, and Lydia and so on, are getting together with a view to a day of prayer in March, calling it a day of repentance and prayer. I think something we need to seriously consider but just to know that God is clearly stirring on a wide front people 
to pray for the nation. I find at the same time at the Charismatic Leaders Conference, which is a very wide uh, representation of Christians, that still people are avoiding crunch issues about the church. And to me, that, uh, that is such a key, as we've expressed here before, after spring harvest, uh, that they've got your thousands, uh, something like 50,000 going, but a huge percentage, I would think over 90% of people present going back to frustration in their home church life. That's the sort of thing that's being expressed there all the time. If only it was like this at home, they're saying. And so the, the challenge to keep on building the church aright and to, uh, as Dave expressed it just now, have a model that's there for people to see, people to be excited about, have their hearts stirred about. Uh, recently, a guy called Andreas has been with Dave Holden and the Church of Barnabas. He is leading the church now in Basel. And having been with Dave and in the context of seeing how to do it, then going back, because there is great value not only in going to these places, but also in bringing people back to see what we're doing. Uh, I encouraged the churches in South Africa to budget for their elders to come over on a yearly basis to be amongst us. And Dave's made reference to people coming over from Canada. There is great value in people coming and seeing what God's teaching us and underlines what's been said more than once, the fact that we must be consistent in that what God is doing here is worth looking at and that God, by his grace, is making us a light to the nations. That's what God is saying. I felt the song that uh, Rosie wrote those years ago was a prophetic song. God, our God, blesses us that all the ends of the earth might fear him. And that should be our vision. That's our vision, I believe, in, in, uh, consistent with the prophetic word that's come to us, that we should reach the nations under God, that God will make us a light to the nations. In uh, a few weeks' time, I was speaking recently at London Bible College, and uh, as an outcome of that, there was a leading Japanese pastor who was present, and he's written to me since saying, can I come, please, and see your church? And uh, I've booked for him to come down on the celebration day early in January uh, to come and be amongst us. And Michael Griffiths uh, wrote to me, who's the principal of LBC now, and said, if that man is touched, uh, the ongoing implications are hard to measure. He is a leading, influential pastor in Japan, where the church tends to be very formal, according to Michael Griffiths. And uh, so even Michael Griffiths from LBC is saying it would be such a blessing if the man was touched uh, by being among you and uh, picking up something of what God is doing. Now that again is very consistent with the prophetic word that God's been saying to us, that we should reach the ends of the earth. Uh, just on that, once again, to ask for your prayers in these coming days as I go out to Maranatha. I don't know if I've mentioned that before to the whole church or in this context. Have I mentioned that? No? Heads shaking. Um, just a quick recap, something I have said before. That when I had a slip disc two and a half, three years ago, God said to me, write the book, Restoration of the Church. I'd been on my back for a couple of months, and I thought, saying, Lord, what is this all about? And I felt God said to me very clearly, I want you to write the book. 
uh, which uh, restoration in the church. And I remember it ever so clearly one morning, just standing there, and God said, it's for the nations. It's to touch the nations. And I'd had this battle about, had I got time to write a book? And uh, I felt God said to me, I've taken you out two months. How long more do you want me to take you out for? So I said, I'll write the book. I'll write the book. And uh, so it is amazing to me that uh, what happened was i would written that book. I was out at the Maranatha Conference in Dallas two and a half years ago with Richard Hayden Noel on our way back home from Mexico. I was to go to Washington, D.C. Larry and C.J. heard that I was changing flight in Dallas. They said, why don't you come a day early to Dallas? We are speaking at a big missionary conference, or at least Larry was. C.J. was present with him. And I went to that conference, and I believe you may have read in update. I hope you did. When we did the one on missions with Henry on the front cover, you know, we did an issue on missions. And I made reference to being at this missionary conference where they, they, lit, they read out all the nations of the world. It's one of the most amazing conferences I've ever attended. Something like four or 5,000 people there, 60 nations represented. Uh, they, such zeal and fire and enthusiasm <laughs> and going to the ends of the earth. Um, an amazing conference. Uh, taking place. And CJ said to me one day, said, love to see you on that platform. I thought, yeah, big joke. Uh, huge responsibility uh, to be in that context. Well, I had a phone call the other day, and uh, <laughs> the fellow called Bob Weiner, who heads up Maranatha Ministries, phone. Now, I've never met him. Phone rang, picked up, hello, Bob Weiner here, Bob Weiner here. And uh, he said, I've recently read your book. Larry Tomzak sent it to me. So I'm really stirred by it. We've sent it to all our full-time workers, some 500 full-time workers around the world. We've sent it to. We've recently had a day of prayer, and we feel to ask you, will you please come and speak at our next Maranatha World Leaders Conference, which is at Fort Worth, uh, Texas, in December. And uh, we, would, we, we feel we're going to change the name of the conference. We're going to call it reaching a new generation through a glorious church. The thing that I felt so strongly as I came away from that conference, if only the message of the church was coming through. And uh, now they're saying they want to call it that. And I'm to speak to two main sessions uh, one morning and then to speak to seminars all uh, uh, of the afternoons. So I go out on the 28th of December and come back on the 2nd of January. So it's an extraordinary uh, opening uh, that God is just giving. There will be 60 nations represented at that conference. Uh, so he said to me uh, about, he said, he asked me something.